which is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane's son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and joined by my co-hosts. Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you guys doing? Good. Dude, I'm doing well. I got my green lights going tonight in the background. I'm feeling a little Lovecrafty. I'm feeling like I'm ready to talk about some cosmic shit. Awesome. And uh and I'm I'm excited that you know one of our co-hosts happens to be a legitimate expert on Lovecraft. So yes. I'm sure he's gonna set the record straight tonight on a lot of my misconceptions, but also teach us quite a bit about this incredible writer and um and how his work and the work of cosmic horror in general kind of fits into alien because we know there's a lot of very strong ties to the two. Yes. So what Patrick's alluding to is this episode is essentially tying Lovecraft's work and themes to the Alien series. But I think this conversation is going to go beyond that, too. We're going to talk about a lot of other things. I am not uh, a Lovecraft. Like, I know who he is. I've, you know, I've seen um, versions of his work. Um, I've seen elements of his work and other things, most notably Lovecraft was someone a lot of people were talking about because of that show Lovecraft Country, which I thought was interesting, which actually I didn't like at all. And I thought it was divisive and boring and not scary. Uh, however, um, I'm excited to get into this conversation tonight about his themes and how they relate to our favorite series. Right off the bat, one thing that's really interesting with Lovecraft was that as an author, he was setting out to create a mythology. And so there are just inherently, he built contradictions into his work so that you could have different opinions and you could legitimately create your own idea of what this ought to be. And for that reason alone, I didn't watch the show Lovecraft Country, but I read the novel and it reminded me a little bit of how on Stranger Things, the kids use Dungeons and Dragons as a way of putting names to the weirdness that's affecting their lives. And so similarly in Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, because the main character is such a fan of weird fiction, he just sort of borrows these terms from Lovecraft and they're, they're misapplied. I would say that none of the things he he's witnessing really match up, but that's half the fun. It's, it's such a, uh, it's a, a, an open sandbox that you can play in. As Jamie said, this is something that I've been interested in and studying for a couple of decades now. And it directly impacts my, one of my main jobs is that I'm writing a Lovecraftian story, but specifically the Lovecraftian story of the Necronomicon, which is the book that Lovecraft invented only in suggestion. The whole point was maybe a, a quote here or there, but mostly it was the idea that this book, and then later a whole series of books, as his other fellow authors started adding, um, would would exist 
for your imagination to build on. And of course, a few people have tried to write the Necronomicon in the past. Uh, I don't think they've been particularly successful. And to misquote Tommy Morrison, if there's a book that you want to read and it's not out there, you have to write it. So I'm sure she was talking about the Necronomicon when she said that. So that's what I've been working on. I spent 10 years um, doing artwork for it. And for the last four years, I've been writing it. And it's going to take another four years to finish. So that's my, that's my big project. That's a lot of information for people who may not even know who Lovecraft was. So we should probably go over that just quickly. Lovecraft, uh, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was his full name, and he was um, a pretty obscure author writing in the 1920s and 1930s um, entirely in uh, the pulp magazines that existed at, at that time. There was this real explosion of really cheaply printed, cheaply made magazines to to match all different kinds of uh, genres from, you know, there was Westerns and, and horror and action, all these different things. And these were, like I said, they were printed cheaply and they weren't intended to last. So the fact that Lovecraft was writing stories that actually do survive. And uh, while they were never collected or printed in hardcover in his lifetime, very soon after his death, friends of his and fellow authors banded together to keep his writing in print. And so these things ended up, there were, uh, uh, during World War II, there were soldier editions of his stories that were, that were sent out. And they were translated into a whole bunch of different languages, um, including French, which is going to come up later because I'm pretty sure H.R. Uh, Giger read the French edition of Lovecraft because it was a huge influence on him. Lovecraft died in 1937 in obscurity. He was so dirt poor that he was living off uh, like canned beans, things like that. And so he died of cancer because he didn't have a good enough diet and he didn't take care of himself. So at the time of his death, he assumed he had not succeeded, that his stories would die with him. And it's just kind of amazing, 100 years almost later, there's, there's almost no part of our popular culture that isn't touched a little bit by what Lovecraft created. You can see it. We talked about it in Stranger Things. You can see it in Star Wars. You can see it in all kinds of video games, television shows, all sorts of literature to the point where his own last name has been turned into a descriptive term. Things are often called Lovecraftian. And tonight we're going to definitely talk about what that means and how that can be misapplied um, and how sometimes what we're really talking about isn't Lovecraft, but this larger concept called cosmic horror. That started before him. He's probably the greatest practitioner of it or the most, like he's the superstar, like the rock star of, of cosmic horror. But it is a separate thing that doesn't have to have his name applied to it. And in my opinion, Alien in particular is a fantastic example of both cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror. Whereas Prometheus is a problematic example of both of those things. But we'll get into that in a minute. Patrick, do you have anything you wanted to add? Oh, we will get into that in a minute. And before we do, there's something about Lovecraft that I know we all wanted to address at the beginning. And I'm going to get around to that by way of giving you some of my personal history with Lovecraft, because I came at it significantly later than Christian did. And I got into it largely because of Prometheus. Like I kept seeing people talking about the Mountains of Madness 
in the lead up to Prometheus and how this was all this hubbub about it. And I was like, I should probably read some of this guy's stuff. So I got uh, this massive collected edition that Barnes and Noble put out, which is really beautiful and has all of his collected writings in it. Um, and I read the, almost the entire thing. There's, there's some that I've kind of skipped through, but but by by and large, I've read all of it. And that got me into all sorts of things like, as Christian was mentioning, the you know games that have come out of this, like the Arkham Horror board games and the Living Card game, the video games, the games like the Sinking City, games like the Call of Cthulhu. It, it really has touched all of these different genres and these different media that I really care about. And so Lovecraft over the last, then especially in the last three or four years, I would say like my cousin and I have just had this constant dialogue about Lovecraft because we're both kind of nuts. And that's gotten me into people like Ramsey Campbell and other authors who, you know, are kind of in the greater orbit, Jeff Vandermeer being potentially one of them as well. So, and anyway, the reason I'm getting into that is because I talk about Lovecraft a lot just in my daily life with people. You know, I play a lot of virtual game nights with people. We, you know, Lovecraft comes up quite a bit. And I was on a hike with some of my friends last week. And we were talking about Lovecraft and the, this you know thing came up, which comes up every time Lovecraft comes up now for good reasons, which is the racism in a lot of his writings. And it's a, it's a complicated issue to unpack. And I want Christian to take us through it. But what I want to say up front is that there is a genuinely problematic aspect to a lot of Lovecraft's work and a lot of his correspondence, especially, that there's no way you can sugarcoat it. But there is more to it than that. And I think that his as his evolution personally over his lifetime is something really worth unpacking as well. So um, it's a complicated racist legacy that kind of a Christian, you want to give us a little window into that? I do. So let's see. I wonder if someday people will look back on J.K. Rowling or Kanye West and have this similar problem of grappling with someone whose work early on was so... Um, so important to their genre or so genre defying. And then later on, their very ugly personal beliefs made it very uncomfortable, uncomfortable for people to identify as fans. Now, the weird situation here, of course, is we're talking about someone who died, you know, almost 100 years ago. And so right up front, as, as someone who is literally spending hours of my day thinking about his writing, thinking about the world that he created, I 100% have to say, yes, he was a racist, but there is context that does not in any way exonerate him, but needs to be mentioned because we're talking about a time when the KKK had millions of members and had um, marches in Washington with no, with no face coverings. They were proud of what they were doing. And Lovecraft wasn't part of that. The majority of Lovecraft's racism is actually found in his personal correspondence, which was private was letters that he would be horrified that people were, were collecting in books and reading. That does not, again, exonerate anything. The, what he was writing for, Weird Tales magazine, was explicitly racist in that it was for you know, white men reading about the, 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 you know, the, the yellow peril and you know, terrible cannibals from Africa. It just, it was this, this genre pulp stuff, the same sort of things that you actually see in things like Indiana Jones, and the temple of doom. That's a throwback to that same very problematic style of writing. And while Lovecraft's text or prose rises above that because he was, he was a better writer than those people. It absolutely comes into play. You have this idea. If any character isn't a Nordic white man, then they're probably evil. They're probably up to no good, or at the very least, they're degenerate. He had this fixation on classifying humans 
which is especially strange because he was 100% a scientific materialist. He loved science. He went out of his way to correct his stories. Um, if he could catch them before printing, if some new piece of scientific evidence had come out, like he wrote this whole novel about uh, Antarctica and uh, just before it went to publishing, um, new information came out about how the, the continent actually was formed. And so he had to go back in and try to fix that. So that part of his life had to be accurate. But then on the other hand, you have this obsession with wildly inaccurate ideas of racial identity. So Lovecraft was a racist. He was coming from a time that was racist. And I find it objectionable when I, when I encounter it in his writing. Um, it, at the same time, you can look at something like Huckleberry Finn, um, which has the N-word over 200 times in it. You can look at things like uh, Agatha Christie's, what we know as, uh, and then there were none, or Tendhal Indians. Tendhal Indians was not the original title. When it was published in 1939, it was Ten Little Enslers. And it stayed in print under that title in England until 1985. So there is a larger context for what we consider okay and how long into our, how far into the, the near present like, okay, I live in the state of Maine. It's the whitest state in the union. 1977 is when they finally passed a law saying that you couldn't have place names, townships, roads, mountains with the N-word in them. So 1977. So again, I'm not trying to exclude, excuse anything. It's more what I feel has happened is because you can point to very specific passages in Lovecraft's letters and stories and say, my God, this man is very racist. If you don't then look at the rest of the world, especially the rest of um, New England in the 1920s and 30s, you're going to miss the fact that there's a very ugly truth about America at that time. Uh, and sadly, he's representative of that. Now, to finally bring it back to Alien a little bit, um, as you all know, Joseph Conrad is a very important author. And, and through Ridley Scott, that's how we get the name. Nostromo. That's how we get the name Sulaco because James Cameron was paying homage to that. But what's the shuttlecraft on the, the, the Nostromo? It's the Narcissus. The Narcissus comes from a Joseph Conrad story called The N Word of the Narcissus. It's about a black man on a ship. I don't know if that's Ridley Scott making a little bit of a joke or if he just liked the name Narcissus, but that's its own kind of problematic aspect. So, as fans of someone who is long dead, we can't get him to change his opinion. But again, as I said about JK Rowling, you can't deny the impact that this person's writing has had, whether or not you find them objectionable. Um, the, the writing is so pervasive. There was a point where it was like uh, Lovecraft country um, uh, underwater had Cthulhu in it. Um, the lighthouse all were coming out. Um, the, the, uh, the Netflix Sabrina show did a whole, um, a whole thing with Lovecraft. It is all happening at the same time. It was the most amazing, just zeitgeist moment. But Patrick, Jamie, please push back on me if, if you think I am in any way trying to justify or, or soften Lovecraft's racism, because that is not my intention. Um, I think this is an interesting topic. And when Christian, you were here in LA, we were at the Lovecraft, what was it called? Lovecraft Museum? Uh, the Lovecraft Historical Society. Historical Society. So, and we, I brought this up, or yeah, I brought this up to you and to your fellow members that that were there. And as someone of color, 
I see what I perceive as white people getting over his racism a little bit easier than people of color. Oh, we can, yes, this is problematic, but we're going to get over it because we love it so much. That's a hard thing for me to deal with. Um, just like when I found out about Michael Jackson, I deleted all of his music because I can't do it. Um, now, I'm not saying that about Lovecraft. Like, I think there are some really powerful themes. Um, like, one of those themes is cosmicism, which I think is just fascinating, fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Um, and I was, as I was reading more about that and listening to people talk about that today, it was just hearing the details and where it stems from. It was just fascinating today uh, to me. At the same time, it's a bit of a moral conundrum too. Like, like for instance, with Kanye West, Kanye West published on his Twitter and Instagram or whatever, uh, these pretty horrible things he said about Jew Jewish people. Now, I don't own any Kanye West music. I'm not Jewish. Um, but if I were a Jew, I would be like, I'm getting rid of everything. Not because I'm like, oh, let's burn this stuff, but because this now represents something completely different. So the conundrum for me is overlooking something like, oh, yeah, like we can you can overlook this because it doesn't really affect you. And I don't know how I feel about that. I, that's a tough one for me. Like, oh, uh, be, then I think about Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, this show, which I also took major issue with because they flipped it. And all the white people in the show were evil, all of them. And I, as someone of two races, I was like, that's just not accurate. That's just not how it was. Now, I get what they were trying to say. I get what they were going after that even during that time and this in the period of in that period in this country the white people were just as monstrous as the monsters i get it i get that's what they were trying to say but to not balance that with any like people who were caucasian who were there to aid them or to help them with no ulterior motives that was a big issue for me and one of the reasons why i stopped watching the show the other reason why i stopped watching the show was just cuz i thought it wasn't scary it just seemed like Scooby-Doo to me, like it just seemed very kind of all over the place. But at the same time, I go back to, and I'm very excited to have this conversation about Alien and Lovecraft because I think the themes are important, but I just, I have a hard time when people can overlook stuff like this. I just really do. That's easier for them to overlook it. I just do. Well, and the, the interesting thing, and I, I do, I do want to move on from this, not because it's unimportant because it is important to talk about, but just because I want to make sure we get to the meat of the episode with Lovecraft, you can't separate his racism from his art entirely because it does, as Christian was saying, show up a lot, not just in the letters that he wrote, but, it, but it, there, there are like pretty, pretty obvious racist tropes in a lot of his work. I was just reading some out loud with Micah this weekend and she was like, Oh my God. Like it, it honestly, like really there's, there's a lot of racism in his stuff, whether we're talking about something like the Dunwich horror where you have, you know, these like hideous half breeds, or you're talking about yeah, a, a, a lot. It just shows up in a lot of ways. Some of them are subtle and some of them are not subtle, but what I want to say though, lastly, is that HP Lovecraft grew up in a household defined by mental illness, especially his mother's mental illness. And that had a huge cascading effect on his life that he really never escaped the shadow of. And you see after her death in his later years that he does start to evolve. He starts to meet people from other cities. He starts to get to make new friends that are outside of his immediate circle in Providence, et cetera. And he does kind of start to, towards the end of his life, um, if not outright renounce things. 
at least start to express some curiosity that maybe he might not have been right all along. That being said, and Christian, feel free to jump in if you have anything else to say on that. But I think I think we can move on to Alien, if uh, if that's okay. Do you have anything to say? I don't because it's such a sticky subject. I completely hear what Jamie's saying, and it's it's one of those things where again these texts are referenced so often that you know reading it and understanding it because it's a way of understanding in this case, we're talking about um, HR Giger and Dan O'Bannon were both gigantic Lovecraft fans. And so this combination is part of what makes aliens so interesting. So it's reading the texts that they read and seeing how it shows up in their work. Doesn't mean you have to love Lovecraft. There was actually a, a podcast. It only, it only lasted a couple episodes. It was two uh, young trans people made a podcast called unrequited Lovecraft about <laughs> loving Lovecraft, but knowing that Lovecraft would not have loved them. And I wish the podcast had gone further, but I love that term of unrequited Lovecraft. So let's, let's talk about how in many ways, uh, some people view alien to be the most Lovecraftian movie because Lovecraftian cinema has been a thing for 50 years, maybe longer of people trying to make adaptations of his work and generally failing. Like I love a lot of these movies, but they're not good. And so then you have something uh, the the thing as well. The thing is based on a story called Who Goes There, which was a blatant ripoff in a lot of ways of Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. And so there's this interesting um, pseudo lineage going back. But Alien doesn't claim that. It's not specifically an adaptation of one of his stories. Although I can make an argument in a minute. So it's more. Does it match this cosmic horror idea? Does it give you that feeling that? humanity is absolutely meaningless in this galaxy and it's it's a very unkind universe what do you guys think i personally think uh again as i can has have continued to investigate lovecraft's themes over the course of the last few weeks since we've decided to do these episodes that alien is most definitely lovecraftian and talking about cosmic horror and oblivion and kind of the void like that's all when they get to that planet that's all that planet is that's all that they're encountering is is this terrifying dark oblivion and that's one of the reasons why i feel like alien is so powerful why alien is such a different film why alien 3 isn't lovecraftian at all and neither is aliens but alien just gets into this and you and one of the the characters in alien Lambert specifically, you see that cosmic horror in her face. You see her staring into oblivion, whether it's when she's walking on the planet or going into the the derelict or when the alien itself is staring at her in her face. Like, I am totally on board. For what it's worth, I think that the derelict sequence is the most perfect Lovecraftian image I can think of in film. I think that that entire sequence to me says everything about H.P. Lovecraft's work that you could possibly want. To me, the core of Lovecraft's work, and again, Christian, please correct me on this, it comes from this idea that like we're basically asleep all the time, like we're a little too stupid to understand how insignificant we are. And the most horrifying thing is to realize for that one fraction of a second how little we really are in the face of the vastness of the things that we have no control over. So that shows up 
I mean, in terms of Lovecraft, you know, in, in terms of him worrying about his health and about everything going wrong all the time, right? In like very real ways. But in the, in the context of literature and the films, it's like this idea that it's almost like there's a door at the end of a hallway and we thought it was a wall, right? And we knocked the door open for a second and we just saw enough to lose our minds and we pulled it closed, but that doesn't do anything to fix it. So the derelict sequence is like, is, is perfect for that because it's like, you know, we are called from the vastness of space towards something ineffable that we didn't know was there. And we get there and we see something incomprehensible. And Giger, who was, as Christian said, a huge Lovecraft nut, did exactly what what Lovecraft did and that he created the language of dreams and used the language of dreams to create art. So what we see is something that feels like something we all shared as some kind of horrible repressed nightmare somewhere, right? And that's like such a hard fucking thing to do and that's part of why the design language of Alien is so is so, you know, enduring is because it really feels like it comes out of our collective subconscious and we just stuffed it down with all this stuff and then all of a sudden we see a glimpse of it. So the fact that it, and then when it gets, when the, when the, you know, team gets to the derelict, there is no explanation of what the hell's going on. There's no language. There's nothing saying, oh, this is what the, you know, intentions of the engineers, there's no engineers, you know, to begin with. But we do see, of course, this humanoid figure at the heart of this ship. And to, that's why I think the jockey is so is so Lovecraftian, because similarly to At the Mountains of Madness, Professor Dyer eventually stumbles on these elder things that are basically people. And that's like the fucking scariest part of all is that you traverse all of this horror and you go through these crazy things and you find out, oh, my God, like it was us, but not us. And the uses who were there before us don't give a shit because we were basically just garbage on the floor compared to them. And that's such a scary Lovecraftian thing. The reason why, and I'll, I'll I'll yield the floor in a minute. To me, Alien becomes less Lovecraftian as it goes on. Not a worse movie. I, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that they should not have done this. Is that we start to learn more about things like the life cycle of the creature. We start to learn more about what it wants. We start to understand that it's trying to eat and reproduce, or at least reproduce. Who knows about eating? And the more answers we get about that the more effective it becomes as a film, as a horror movie, because all of a sudden we got stakes to run from, you know, and a lot of why Lovecraft sucks on film most of the time is because like the stakes are very hard to represent. Like it, it's, it's like this very internal idea, you know? So an alien towards the end of the movie, it becomes, in my opinion, less Lovecraftian because we understand more of what's going on and it becomes more of a, let's just get out of here. This is dangerous. That being said, at the mountains of madness ends the same way. Right. But nobody loses their mind at the end of alien at the end of like, three quarters of Lovecraft's work, people are crazy, right? Like Call of Cthulhu, you have people fucking dying just because they go so crazy that they can't live anymore. Like it's, that's just like a big part of his work in Alien. Nobody goes crazy except maybe Lambert. Um, and I think everybody else for the most part is just in survival mode, survival mode and Lovecraft to me kind of don't really mix. That's kind of my very uh, convoluted way of getting around to it. That's awesome. First of all, um, one of Lovecraft's favorite stories was The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, in which two men go on a boat ride and get lost in on, on this river where the, there are these willow trees. And that's it. There's no other action to the story. It's all about the perception and the mood and the, the dread and the possibility that maybe there's something in the trees, but nothing else happens. And it's amazing. It's an amazing story that could never possibly be filmed. And Lovecraft wanted to reach that point. He wanted to get away from action. So 100%. Um, the, best, the best adaptations of Lovecraft are based on stories that he was disappointed in because there was too much action. But I will say, 
if you look at the call of Cthulhu, which it may not be his best story, but it's absolutely his best known story. It's broken up into multiple sections. These accounts of things that happen And the third account, the madness from the sea is about a group of sailors who um, are diverted from their course and find an unknown place that has fabulous, terrible vistas, things they can't believe they're seeing. And while they're there, they awaken something that absolutely is incomprehensible and managed, manages to kill all of them except one who eventually escapes on the ship. That's Alien. That's the whole plot of Alien in a, in a very succinct way. And, it's, and obviously, that isn't, it isn't a, a text-for-text kind of an adaptation, but it is Lovecraftian in that sense. Now, similarly, you could take the voyage of the Demeter from Dracula and say, here's a boat with a crew that has an unexpected passenger, and that passenger manages to kill them all off one by one, except that it kills them all off. The boat arrives unmanned with you know the last member of the crew tied to the mast or something. Uh, but that works in that story because there, there are already protagonists exterior to that account who can keep the story going. So you need to have you need to have your Ripley survive to be the, the person who goes on to tell the tale. But Ripley knows at the end of the film, the same way that, that uh, Mate Johansson in Lovecraft's story knows the evil is still out there. The place they went to still exists and the threat still exists. I wish the alien ended like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which tangentially I believe is based on the picture in the house by H.P. Lovecraft. But anyway, uh, where The last survivor, the woman who finally escapes, she climbs into the back of the pickup truck as Leatherface is just out of range with his chainsaw and she laughs maniacally. And you get this sense, she's never going to stop laughing. This is it for her. Her mind is shattered by what has happened. And in some ways it would be almost too bleak, but that's what should happen to Ripley too. Is And that's why Aliens is such a good sequel because we get for those first 10 or 20 minutes just how broken Ripley is from the experience that she had in the first film. We're given that time to really see uh, the damage that was done by what had happened. So I feel that, that Alien, again, not being a direct adaptation, but really following a pattern that, that is similar. Uh, Jamie, you've, you've talked about that nautical sense that you get with the crew of the Nostromo. It's like an old creaky ship and instead of an island, it's a planet. Um, now, in a weird way, you're talking about the life cycle. Uh, we don't see the creature eat and we don't see the creature reproduce in the theatrical cut. We have no idea. It just seems to be murdering, murdering and stealing, um, stealing these bodies away. But the, the chest burster, um, people have pointed out that um, Dan O'Bannon had Crohn's syndrome. And so some of the pain may have may have influenced his writing but in lovecraft's story uh the dreams in the witch house at the very end the protagonist who has survived the whole way through this rat creature called brown jenkin that's been a uh, an antagonist to the whole thing literally appears within his chest and eats its way out and so the the orderlies in the hospital where he's being held see this rat erupt from his body and skitter away that's a chest burster you know whether whether Dan O'Bannon knew that he was copying that, or if there's just a little thing in his mind, I don't know. But I, I just I keep seeing different ways that, again, H.R. Giger uh, put out a, a series of of two art books, two big collections of his work called Necronomicon, because he was such a Lovecraft fan. 
there's no pictures of Cthulhu. There's no depictions of Relay. He he completely understood that he could pay homage to Lovecraft better by not referencing, not being slavish in that way. And I feel that's what Dan O'Bannon did too. And that's why I feel like, as you were saying, the set design, the way that the Nostromo looks so completely different than the uh, than the derelict. You're going into a nightmare. The the planet is nightmarish, and then when you go into that derelict, nothing makes sense. The the up isn't up, down isn't down. It's and in in Lovecraftian terms, from the Call of Cthulhu, they they refer to the angles being wrong and someone being swallowed by an angle that should have been obtuse, but instead was the opposite of obtuse. What is that? Acute. Acute. Yes. And it may have been the other way around. It may have been that it was supposed to be acute instead of obtuse, but swallowed by an angle. That's yeah. That, that the best representation of that is when when Cain lowers himself into that chamber, and we see it stretching impossibly beyond him around a bend that doesn't even make sense because we're not in the realm of an understandable, uh, comprehensible world. We are in a nightmare, and even his actions, his the, approaching that egg is that same nightmarish impulse. Why am I doing this? Why are we following this person doing this? That's why for me, the film really works that way. We're going to take a break and be right back. We all remember that moment. The first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie, how it stayed with us, comforted us stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise, as well as our Warehouse of Framerate episodes, where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. What do you think, Jamie? Well, I... Some of what I was going to say you said, but um, just in terms of like challenging Patrick a little bit, uh, I don't feel like, okay, so maybe Ash identified a couple of different things in the uh, the facehugger, like he identified and kind of how it was feeding it. But I feel like that's all the information we got. We don't know what it's doing. We don't know how it's doing. Like these bodies are going missing. Um, I also to the point of Ripley having a, a psychotic break. I think she did. Yes, she survived, but clearly this woman, as we see in Aliens, was not herself. Now, did she go crazy? I don't I don't know what crazy is. Um, but did she, did she have some type of psychological break? I think it's pretty obvious that she did. At the same time, I don't think everything needs to be point for point with Lovecraft to be Lovecraft. You know, I think... You can play with themes, uh, for instance, and uh, Christian, you're going to have to remind me of the name of the, the creatures that Lovecraft created. They're called, they're black. and they would, oh, Night gods. Yeah, night oh, gods. Night gods. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're reading about them. Very, very alien-esque. And I, I again, I, I can't, I keep going back to the idea that when you uh, worded this perfectly, Patrick, in one of our episodes, that looking into the face of the alien is looking into oblivion. And um, consequently, when you look at Giger's work, I remember as a young kid, after seeing Aliens and then seeing Alien, wanting to know more about this art and hearing about Giger and opening a book at a 
borders or something and being terrified of what I was seeing, terrified because I didn't know what I was looking at. I just didn't know. I was like, well, it was very sexual. There was babies involved. I mean, not in the sexual stuff, but just like it was gross. It was slimy. And for me, I felt like as again, as an adult and now reading about Lovecraft, Giger's work is the essence of who Lovecraft or the essence of what Lovecraft wrote about that oblivion, that what the void again, looking into this, this thing and not knowing what you're looking at. Um, what's interesting too, again, to go back to cosmicism is as I was reading about that and listening to people talk about what cosmicism is, and it's the idea that kind of the, the universe is kind of there. Like, no one created it, it's there. But then they get to this creature that did create it, but it's asleep, and it's got all these eyes on it and everything. I can't remember the name of the creature. But I thought, oh, this is interesting. So Lovecraft is saying something did create the universe, but it's asleep, and it's uh, lethargic, and it's not of consequence, which I thought, well, this is an interesting indictment on God. Like, where are you? What are you doing? So it's the idea that, Nothing created it, but yeah, maybe something did. But if it did, it is negligent in its role. It is now irrelevant. Um, the, wor the world has surpassed it. Darkness has almost taken over it. And this thing is doing nothing about it, which I thought was really interesting. Um, to go back to Alien, I again, I, I think one of the things that terrifies me and I will, why I can always look at a creature, at a, uh, uh, an image of the alien is because at my age now, having seen the films over and over and over and looking at that thing in the face, I still don't know what I'm looking at. I still don't know what I'm looking at. And it's terrifying. And I think humans, we look for patterns. We look to understand things. Well, how does this work? And of course, Ash, when he was processing it and taking samples, he was a, a, a droid. So he was doing what droids do, which was kind of synthesizing and, and um, doing research. But Ash didn't find any more out about this thing than anybody else did. He just found out that how like the protein polysaccharides and like there was a feeding tube down his throat. That's all Ash discovered. And then come aliens, we don't really, we see Bishop doing similar things. He's kind of looking at it. He's, he, it's a, uh, it's under a microscope and he has the thing torn up, but we don't know anything more about it. And even by the time, by the end of alien three, we still don't know anything about this, this creature, which is just simply this moving black hole that's just sucking everything in. We don't know. And I know that there's extrapolation. Like you hear, oh, this is a queen and she's going to breed. And, but to what end? To what end? What are they doing? Even ants have a purpose in our, in our world. Ants contribute to this, this uh, ecosystem that we live in. And they're, a very important and fragile part of this ecosystem. Whereas with the alien, what the fuck are they doing? Why the fuck are they doing it? And I can't, I've never been able to answer that question, which, so it goes back to me. It goes for me. It, I, I return to this idea that it is truly the creature itself, but more specifically alien is truly, truly the unknowable and the unknowable, which, at which I think fear is based in, Fear, I feel like oblivion and um, fear are the same thing. 
because we don't see an end. We don't see a point to it. And there's nothing. It's like, and I think that's why sociopaths are so, so frightening. Um, and a lot of murderers tend to be sociopaths because you don't see anything in their eyes. There's nothing there. They're just killing machines. For what reason? Well, we don't, they're not killing them to eat. They don't need to. I, I, even talking about it is freaking me out a little bit. Um, so I, I, the more I discover about Lovecraft and his themes and what really scared him and what he wrote about, the more Alien fits that mold. <laughs> Yeah, you, you guys are winning me back over to saying it's Lovecraft through and through. I think what I'm feeling more is that, and, and I, I also have always talked about Alien vis-a-vis Lovecraft, like, but in, in thinking it over and over in preparation for this episode, I come upon things like the fact that they see it has a defense mechanism when it has acid for blood, like things like that. It just makes it feel very biological to me. And I think what I'm what I'm picking up on isn't so much that it becomes less Lovecraftian, because Christian, you are right, like the third act of Call of Cthulhu really is basically the plot of Alien. It's more that it becomes less cosmic horror somewhat as that particular story progresses. And I think that the series comes back to it. But to me, Aliens is, is and, and this might piss you guys off, is almost anti-Lovecraftian. Because in Aliens, we get all of those answers that we're talking about. Because like they, we do, there is no mystery at all about what they want. They want to reproduce. Like they're a biological species that wants to do well. And they're doing it. You know, you so you can get there's some themes in aliens that do, I think, speak to Lovecraft, but to my mind, like the aesthetics of it and the science, the sort of scientific underpinnings of it don't really match up. Going back to something that you had said, and I'm, you know, we can jump around here. Uh, Lovecraft was an atheist avowedly, and and I think that you see a lot of that coming through in his work. And I think something that we talk about quite a bit with Alien is this idea of whether it's nihilistic or anti natalistic or something in between. This idea of like, is it trying to say that life is meaningless, which I think we always come across saying, no, it's not trying to say that. I think what it's trying to say ultimately is that there are things out there that we are incapable of comprehending and that that's where the fear comes from. To me, like when I'm playing something like, you know, Alien Isolation, for example, which which I've played for probably hundreds of hours of my life. I'm not scared in a Lovecraftian sense in that, as amazing as it is, because I, I'm, it's a cat and mouse game. Like I know what I'm doing, right? But the derelict sequence to this day works for me as a, as a prime example of Lovecraftian filmmaking. Another moment that I think speaks to Lovecraft really eloquently is in Prometheus, a movie that I have made something of a career shitting on uh, on podcasts. But when when David when uh, when David talks to the engineer in the end of the film and he uses the engineer's language and the engineer gets angry about it, that to me is a super Lovecraftian moment because it's almost like the engineer is like, how how dare you pretend to be on my level? And I love, and I think that's why the engineers and Prometheus are so scary to us is because we recognize just enough of them to see ourselves in them. And then because we can see ourselves in them, we can see how vast the gulf is between the two of us and how small we are. So I think Prometheus deserves there. I mean, obviously it is it's essentially an adaptation about the mountains of madness. Like that's something that has been talked about ad nauseum. But I think that there are really interesting Lovecrafting things going on there too, and in Covenant for what it's worth. So as the group or the resident aliens apologist, I have to agree. Um, aliens is not a Lovecraftian movie. And uh, as you guys know, I love the first three films in this series and I appreciate the last two. We don't talk about resurrection. It doesn't do anything. Uh, only alien 
as Jamie said, only Alien really hits this Lovecraftian cosmic horror idea. Aliens, as a sequel, has to uh, evolve the concept and and creates um, an understandable ecology. Like, oh, they're an ant hive or an ant colony. Fine. In Alien 3, strangely, um, there's no time for any of that. That just isn't, there's, there, we don't have that scientist character or... You know, anyone trying to think about the alien, they just need to survive it or kill it. Are you guys familiar with the concept of the overview effect? Probably not. Yes. Yes. I was just in conversations about it. It's, yeah. uh, uh, What's his name? Um, James T. Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. So I only just learned about it because of William Shatner, because he got to go up into space. And so having made a career of playing Captain James T. Kirk, flying across the galaxy and seeing all different kinds of planets, William Shatner got to go up and I'll quote him. When I looked into space, there was no mystery, no majestic awe to behold. All I saw was death. And he went on to say that it felt like a funeral. And this is a thing they, they call it the, uh, the overview effect. And it happens to a lot of people, uh, especially the first time they go up into space is that instead of looking out into those stars with wonder you have this unbelievable feeling of horror and dread that there's just nothing there. Uh, and, that, and he went on to say that what he realized was that um, the earth was so important and so dear because that's all there is. There's, there's nothing else. There's no other place to go. And so I thought this was such a neat thing to bring into this conversation because it bolsters this idea of cosmic horror um, that on earth is theoretical, but apparently if you go into outer space, it is absolutely um, almost a medical condition. It's a thing that can happen to you that is debilitating. So uh, I definitely want to talk to talk about Prometheus. I don't know if we should just stick to alien in this episode and cover that in a different one, or what do you guys think about yeah, that? Why don't, why don't we do that? Because I, I think Prometheus has obviously a lot to it with Lovecraft. And, and I, I feel like there's a lot of things I want to talk about with alien still that we haven't even gotten to yet. So yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, let's, let's keep it to alien. Uh, but to your point of the overview effect, I don't. I've actually experienced that in airplanes, um, where I can look down. When I look down at the Earth, I'm just overcome with beauty and awe, and it's almost like a godlike view. I don't actually. I don't know your views on God, Christian, or I know you're a bit of an agnostic, Patrick. But I am a believer in higher power. I don't know what that is, but I have that view, and it's and it's just gorgeous. But if I look up, it's terrifying to me. Because, and that's why I don't like a lot of people are afraid of heights. I'm not, I'm afraid to look up. I'm not afraid to look down because there's an, there's an ending there. Even I'll probably die if I fall, but there's an ending where there is, if I go up, it will never end. And that freaks me the fuck out. So, uh, but I am excited to talk about Prometheus because I think there is so much Lovecraft in Prometheus, honestly. Um, But it's in bits and pieces um, the bits and pieces that aren't full of exposition. So I'm excited to have that conversation when we do. Yeah, that, that's the over. I, now that you're talking about, it, I have heard of this overview effect, and I think it's so fascinating. And I think that um, it speaks to. I have a similar fear, which is I think the basis for my next tattoo, newsflash, which is a, a, a it's a dead astronaut. To me, I think that's like such a fucking scary idea. And I think it defi- actually defines a lot of the media that I've like fallen in love with over the years, whether, whether it be Alien, whether it be Dead Space, whether it be Lovecraft. You know, this idea that um, that there are things out there that are just so much vaster than us and that if we actually give into that, that we'll lose our minds. Um, going back to Alien for a moment, 
And, uh, you know, Christian, you were talking about the, the geometric aspects in Lovecraft's work. I love how, you know, for example, it becomes harder sometimes as you approach the source of something to tell if it's horizontal or vertical or to tell which direction you're facing. You know, a great, you know, photographic example of that, an alien, of course, is the water trickling up from the egg, <clears throat> the ovomorph uh, on the... <laughs> In the silo within the derelict, Christian doesn't like the term "obermorph." That's another episode. Um, but this author, all you know, to me, like one of the great things about the derelict is that it's essentially anti-geometrical, and by that I mean, you know, not only is it humanoid and you know, obviously vaginal in many ways, but like the the corridors don't make sense in it. There's a sense of insanity to the structure, insanity that is not there because it's insane, but insanity because we can't comprehend how it works. That's what I fucking love about it. And that's what I hate in the prequels when we see control panels floating up and everything. It's like, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to know any of that. Like, I want to look at something incomprehensible. And that goes to the heart of what I love most about Alien, truly. And what I have talked about ad nauseum on episodes, for example, we're talking about what's scary about it. The, to me, the scariest thing is the thing that we just can't understand. That's why I think an, a great example of a Lovecraftian work is Annihilation. In some ways, it's not. But I think, to me, like the, the apotheosis of Annihilation is probably the most alien thing I've ever seen outside of the original derelict sequence in Alien, because it is just impossible to know what you're looking at. It just doesn't make sense. You stare into that ball of light, and you just have no clue what's going on. And then you're given no more answers than that. You're kind of given answers at the end of the movie because you know they've escaped containment, right? But other than that little thing, like we really we just don't know. And then we then then the alien comes out and it's materialized, and it's still the we still don't know what the fuck's going on. Um, you're absolutely right that in the original release of Alien, we don't understand anything about cocooning. We don't understand anything about ovomorphing or whatever that actually is. We don't know anything other than the fact that it's it's you know chasing people down and killing them because we know that it's killing them for the most part. But then we have moments like – so actually, I'm going to go back. To me, the most Lovecraftian thing in Alien – maybe the derelict is more Lovecraftian, but I think the Brett's death sequence to me is an amazing example of Lovecraftian filmmaking – and it doesn't even have a tentacle in it, although it kind of does because the tail kind of comes in, right? So when it comes down from the ceiling, just in terms of physics, it doesn't make sense, which we've talked about quite a bit. But then when it stands there behind Brett and he turns around, we are greeted with, as I've said in the past, basically an orgasm of, of incomprehensibilities, right? We're staring for the first time in the face of this thing, and we see nothing that makes any fucking sense at all. That's what's so, it's so hard to remember that feeling because we, we're so used to it now. But we're looking at something that doesn't have eyes. We're looking at something with a mouth inside of another mouth. And we're looking at something that has steam flying out of it with spit flying everywhere that is just staring in it the way it's framed. It takes up the entire camera. So we don't know how big it is. We don't know what direction it's facing. We don't know if it sees us. We have no clue what it wants or what it is. And that to me is really at the heart of what makes Lovecraft so great because so much of his work touches on that idea of what if you see something you have no language for? It's because you don't know the language in the first place. And that's what's scary about it, right? That's what's terrifying about Under the Skin. That's another conversation, but Under the Skin has, have you seen that, Christian? Um, I haven't, but I have really enjoyed your frame rate on it. It's, I would say it's completely Lovecraftian in terms of this void. You don't even know what these things are, what they want. And it's fucking terrifying. Uh, that's another conversation, but highly recommended to you, Christian. Not for children. Really, really good. I'm trying to think if I had one last thing about Alien. I mean, we, we can always, we, we will definitely continue to talk about Alien in our Prometheus episode because there is some comparing and contrasting to do. Sometimes Prometheus does things better, for sure. 
Um, I, and I, I do 100% believe that I, I, my problem is that Prometheus wears its Lovecraftian um, pedigree on its sleeve. It's so like, look, this is, this is a thing because of Lovecraft and alien is Lovecraftian despite itself, or it doesn't, it, it isn't referencing specifically. It isn't referencing any names or any tropes. It just, it just is. And if you, if you get it, you get it. God, I love alien. Yeah. I, what I, I can't wait for the Prometheus episode because there's so much there, like what we eventually see in terms of the, that the, what what the fuck is that blue thing called the deacon at the end like what we're seeing are, are iterations <laughs> of a pathogen and um that's just another conversation that i can't wait to have about what that it's just kind of a virus that's that's made flesh and what does that mean and blah 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 so yeah also, what you're hearing what, yeah. what you're hearing right now in real time dear listeners is episode planning happening in the midst of an episode <laughs> because i have an idea i think we also should talk exclusively about giger and his love for Lovecraft and how that work influenced his design work for Alien, because I think there's actually a lot there. And the reason why there's a lot there is the same reason why, Christian, you're saying that Alien doesn't wear the fan t-shirt of Lovecraft the way Prometheus does, is because Giger is tapping into the same deep aesthetic realities that that Lovecraft was motivated by. So that's why it doesn't feel like it's wearing the, you know, the costume of Lovecraft. It feels like it's coming from the same shared dream of a haunted bas relief, you know? So yeah, Christian, go ahead. Oh, I mean, Lovecraft was an extremely uh, sexually repressed man um, who some people very much believe was homosexual. I don't think that's a fair thing to, to say about another person without knowing, but regardless, he did not want to talk about sex. He did not want to think about sex. And therefore there is sex in his writing that he did not intend, but is quite blatant. Like in the, at the mountains of madness, when the men are chased through the tunnel by the white amorphous fluid creature, like Lovecraft, come on. And I think that Giger recognized that immediately and said, Oh yes, I will, I will paint pictures for the, the horrors, the, you know, these, um, repressed images that you're hinting at, I'll put it on paper for you. And that was his, his great gift. When we get to the Prometheus episode, I'm definitely going to share with you guys my batshit crazy uh, interpretation of that film based on Lovecraft, like what I think is actually going on. And so that'll be a, either a treat for the audience or something that'll want to skip. I can't wait. I can't wait. I love yeah, talking about, I on. love talking about stuff like, certainly prometheus i'm not a fan of that movie either there are many elements that i love but i love breaking down the whys not so much the why that i don't love it we've been over that over and over but what i love in something that i don't love you know i, I, I it's just a great conversation so there's just there's too much there there's there's too much in both of those films to ignore and that's why we keep having the ability to go back and and kind of recontextualize or examine again the things that work and mm. that's wonderful that's a gift Hey, before we wrap, uh, we got a couple of new patrons that deserve a shout out. Among them are Don Lawler and Vertigo, who is right up there with Blood Hut in terms of memorable names. I want to say Blood Hut actually has an awesome music page that uh, I think, you know, when we do another episode where we have some time at the end, I'll give more of a formal shout out to. But Blood Hut was in touch with us uh, that it's actually a music project. Also, terrible name for a restaurant. Um, and, uh, <laughs> thank you unless to our it's patrons. Like a, unless it's like a, you know, a rib joint or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's still pretty fucking gross, but you know what? Hey, it's Lovecraftian, right? 
Um, but thank you to everybody who's joined up and helped us out. We're, we're doing a lot with that money right now. We have a short film coming. We have lots of cool things on the horizon. If you want to join, go to patreon.com slash perfect organism or go to our website, perfectorganism.com. You can go to slash support um, and you'll get all the information there. We have tons of new stuff coming up, including a first ever new premiere of a Patreon show that we're calling Jamie. Yo, I fucking hate it. Um, yeah i'm excited about that also as we wrap if you guys love the show please go to itunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and just give us a review reviews really help us um it helps the show be exposed to a a wider audience and we appreciate you listening and uh we'll be back soon amen and if you like the show tell one person about it just do it just tell one person thank you so much Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.